I have not heard the bell, but my, uh, fo- I'm charged. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Bob. Thank you. Good evening. So glad to have you. So, so sorry to interrupt your uh, conversations, and uh, welcome to this midweek assembly, and hope you've had a great week. Can I call this day dreary? Can I do that? Uh, my students were particularly not there today. <laughs> Starting with 8.30 on, I just had to tell by the time my 140 class came along, I said, you guys are worthless, just worthless. I might as well be teaching the telephone poles. <laughs> and they said, yeah, we don't feel good today. It was like a, you know, a chorus of, uh, uh, I think they wanted me to dismiss class. That did not happen. But uh, that said, I was trying to get out of them. Why is it that uh, today was the downcast, you know, something in it? Hope you're not feeling that well, that way, and hope that you've had a great day. And uh, turn open to Acts chapter eight, please. I am supposing that these texts are well familiar to you, and I am encouraging and inviting your comments. And uh, we are not covering the whole book of Acts. We're just doing the first twelve chapters. We're looking at the first few years of. Uh, our Ancestors in the Faith, uh, the title that we assigned to our quarter study in the auditorium these Wednesday nights is Our, our Roots. We're trying to extract lessons from these, and, and here's my suggestions for tonight. And then, of course, you can do what you want to with them. <laughs> you can revise them. Or uh, Let's start with lesson number one. Let's see. Righteous fanaticism. And this is where you go, What? Righteous fanaticism. I think we're going to learn first off about how to be fanatic about the right thing. Then later on in the chapter, we're going to, or soon in the chapter, we're going to have to deal with money and faith. I think that's one of the lessons we're going to have to uh, put our arms around and think about because it's an issue today, and it was an issue back in the first years of the, the, our, our, the way of Jesus of Nazareth. And then, of course, there's the issue of diversity. Diversity in the church. Uh, That is an issue that pops up in the early church, just as it does with us today. So, um, just to start you out, uh, I uh, got a phone call from my father today. Uh, That's not particularly uh, significant, except that he's in Italy. (laughs) And uh, he was in the city of Palermo, which is on the, the, the central city of the island, in 1960, uh, what's the math there? 40, 50, 54 years ago, he went there as a missionary. I don't remember how old he was. And he drugged me along. I was four years old. I didn't have a choice. And uh, so he's back where he started his mission work just out of Lipscomb. And, uh, and uh, it brought to my mind the following thing. I asked him about the brethren there in Palermo. And, and uh, this is... Stereotypical, I'm exaggerating, but here's to get us started. At an Italian dinner table, there are three things you're not supposed to discuss. Can you guess? Politics. Religion. One more. If we're going to talk about fanaticism, we probably should talk about sports too, right? Don't talk about sports. You'll divide the family. The dinner will go badly. Don't talk about politics. There's bound to be a communist among us, right? And thirdly, don't, don't talk about religion, okay? Anything else is, is good. 
okay? Because the Italians stay around the dinner table for two hours, so you've got to talk about something. But what you can't talk about is the things that divide. You can only talk about the things that are, you know, unite or something like that. So, um, fanaticism. I asked, I asked the Purvis family permission. In my opinion, the Purvis family are fanatical about Auburn. That's my opinion. <laughs> and I respect that. In my opinion, Doug Smith is fanatical about Alabama, although he denies it. That's what I think, okay? All right. What can you be fanatical about? Fanatical about. Um, we think of fanaticism is now uh, given to people who in the name of Allah behead. Is that correct? And people who uh, at the same time express their faith in the public square and make it a part of the living and who they are. We have the first example of righteous fanaticism, seems to me, in the early church. So let me get us off the text of Acts chapter 1, which we're not in, but let me go ahead and tell you why I had that up and come to chapter 8 into righteous fanaticism, which I think is the first lesson for me out of this early church history. The last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven are recorded there, the ascension, This is what he said. He said, you, he says to the apostles, to the eleven, will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses. And he says, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have been in chapter 1 through 7 up to this point, and the gospel has been mainly in the first of those three steps that Jesus says to the apostles, this is how it's the way the gospel, the good news is going to expand. It's going to first be in Jerusalem. And I have to tell you, I think it's been in Jerusalem for several years. I don't know how long, but I think the distance between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 8 is a few years. Maybe two, three. You can't tell because Luke doesn't tell you what day it was and what month it was. It's not particular to the first century storytelling. So I think time has passed a few years. So the gospel has now grown from 120 scared people, our earliest ancestors in the faith, to 3,000, to 5,000, and to how many thousands are there now that are the way of Jesus of Nazareth when the first persecution happens. Now look at step two, Judea and Samaria. And in chapter 8, we go to Samaria. So that's phase two, like a rock that's thrown in a pond. And you see the ripples. And the first ripple is Jerusalem. second ripple is Judea and Samaria. And then the third ripple is to the ends of the earth. And that's the way in which Luke is actually going to tell the story of the book of Acts. And right now, you're going from ripple number one to ripple number two as you step in to Acts chapter eight. So let me step away from that and bring us to the text that we need to bring and talk about the right kind of... Um, the right kind of uh, fanaticism. Acts chapter 8. Skip through the first part. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Excuse me. Yes, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We're going to see more Saul in chapter 9, so we'll leave him and focus on a couple of things in these verses. Uh, The intent of the Sanhedrin in killing Stephen 
was to stop this movement in its tracks. They achieved exactly the opposite goal. The, the gospel had stayed for the most within the confines of the, the capital city, 200,000 people of Jerusalem, of which I'm going to estimate eight to 10,000 now are of the way. So 5% maybe of the population had now become followers of the way of Jesus of Nazareth. A real nightmare for the Sanhedrin, for the Pharisees and Sadducees. The, the killing of Stephen was meant to try to do an ultimate thing and stop it. And the goal was, we're going to have to kill more than that, probably. They knew that. And so, persecution starts. And last time we said, Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. And it seems to us that since the apostles are not targeted, that uh, the, probably the, the group that got targeted of Christians were probably Hellenistic Jews like Stephen. Whichever way it is, uh, after they bury Stephen, uh, what you see in verse 1, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the very thing that the Sanhedrin did not want, which is for people to to flee, well, let's rephrase that. They wanted them to flee. They didn't want them to flee with their faith. (laughs) They wanted them to abandon the faith. Stop talking about the name of Jesus. Stop using that name. Do your thing in the privacy of your home, but do not share it with anybody else. Do not spread this thing. Do not carry it. We'll leave you alone if you'll live it out quietly in your little homes. But if you do not stop this, then this Stephen's not going to be, he's the first of many who is going to die. And of course, the Sanhedrin does have that power. While by law, only the Romans can put to death uh, in reality on the ground, uh, yes. All you have to do is utter the word blasphemy. And, of course, they just took Stephen outside the city walls and crushed his skull with stones. Uh, They're going to do that. And the Romans are not going to stop them. Because in this religious thing, the Romans see the Jews as fanatical. They are fanatical about their monotheistic God. They're just different. They're weird. They're they're strange. And uh, they will die. For their God, which is absolutely staggeringly uh, inconceivable. Let me uh, bring up something that most of you have already seen, because sometimes it's easier to see from a different perspective. What does it mean to be fanatical? They're going to carry, these fleeing early Christians are going to carry their faith with them. And so um, uh, some of you have already seen this letter. It's a historical letter written by a Roman governor 80 years after the events we're reading here in Acts chapter 8. He is the governor, Plinius, of a region that's in northern or central Turkey today. It's called Bithynia back then. And he's writing to the emperor in Rome, whose name is Trajan, and he writes a letter because he's persecuting Christians. And he's never done it before. He's never put Christians on trial. This is like viewing... um, the view of the Romans of these Christians, these followers of Christ, this movement um, that, is, that is just inconceivable. They, they are disciples of a crucified criminal. But on top of it all, they, uh, they will die for their, for their faith. And it's just inconceivable. Look at the letter. The governor is writing to the emperor in Rome and saying, how do I handle these people? And he says this, many people of every age, every rank, both men and women, are being summoned to trial and will be summoned. He's talking about 
brothers and sisters of Christ of yours and mine, in the year 112. Uh, the contamination of this superstition has permeated not only the towns, but also the villages. What he says is this, this Christian thing is not only in the towns, but it's in the countryside too. And he calls it a contamination, like it were Ebola. And he calls it a superstition, which is a Latin word for uh, a, 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 just a, a club. And they're illegal. They don't have permission to exist. It still seems that it can be stopped. I think I could stop it. Uh, and corrected, it is clear, though, that the temples, which had been almost desolate for a long time, have begun to be crowded once more. What he says is pagan temples had really lost attendance because of this movement of the way. People stopped going to pagan temples and were worshiping this God of the Jews. And now that I've started persecutions and arrests, uh, the attendance at the temples has come back again. Uh, threatened with their life, most people, sane people, will not, in the name of any god, die. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I have never attended Tile Christians, says um, Pliny. Therefore, I do not know what sort of punishments are usually handed out to them or their severity, nor do I know for what reasons or what extent an inquiry should be made. Could you give me instructions? He's telling the emperor how I'm supposed to deal with this because this is new to me. Should forgiveness be granted for repentance? If they say, I'm sorry I was a Christian, should I just forgive them? Um, do people who have been Christians at any time gain nothing if they renounce it? Should I just punish anybody that said, I, I used to be a Christian? Well, then you deserve punishment. It is very name Christian, which is to be punished, uh, even if no crime is associated with it, or is the crime connected with the name? Uh, I need instructions here. Uh, how should I handle it? For the time being, says the governor to the uh, emperor, I have, till I hear from you, I have been taking this approach with those who have been accused before me of being Christian. First, I ask them whether they are Christians, and those who confess I question a second or third time, it seems unreasonable to this man to say, look, I'm going to ask you once. Are you a Christian? Yes. You must have not understood the implications of that answer. If you say yes, you die. So let me ask you again. Are you a Christian? Yes. No, I'm serious. I'm the governor of Rome. I have the power of the sword. One more time. Are you a Christian? Yes. What he says is this. Those who confess, I question a second or third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persist, I order them to be taken away. And that means to be executed. Look, there, there, there are two doors in this room, not, not five. There are two. This is life, that's death. Answer the question correctly. You answer, say no. Say no. No, you get to go out that way. Oh, by the way, as you go out, you're going to need to uh, prove that you're not a Christian by bowing down to the emperor's statue over there, to the god Apollo over there, the god Zeus over there. And then right as you enter the door right there, you need to curse Christ. And then you can live. If you persist in this stubbornness, then you go out that door. That door is death. Now stop it. <laughs> Be reasonable. Who in their right mind would die for their faith? Who in their right mind? Watch this. Those who persist, I order to be led away. I have no doubt that whatever it is that they are professing, whatever it is that they are professing, their stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy deserves punishment. Anybody that stubbornly hangs on to their God and their faith to the point of death deserves death. 
Now, why would you do that? You have to ask yourself, these early Christians, that start running. Running is natural, but running with your faith is not. That's what the Roman governor says. When you are persecuted, you lose your job, your house, your everything. You, you run, but you don't run with the faith that made you lose all those things. You, you ditch the faith. But these people won't do that. Um, the most remarkable part is the last one. In addition, they curse Christ. I'm told that true Christians cannot be forced to do any of these. It's per- very perceptive of this smart, intelligent guy. Plenty. We know his family. We know him. We know his father. He was an admiral in the Navy. He says, one thing I've figured out is that true Christians cannot be forced to do any of these things. Now, put this in perspective. This is 80 years after the first localized persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. What did they do? Uh, And that's the text that we are in, so let me go back to it and move away from here. Please stop me anytime you have a comment or question. Acts chapter 8, we are back there, and we are looking at what our ancestors in the faith did when duress began. And here is where we are at, right here, uh, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about what? Isn't that encouraging? What do you think? Yes, we're weird. When we are forced to run, we carry our faith with us. It's who we are. When we get on a plane, we travel, we don't leave our faith behind. When we are forced to travel, when persecuted, true Christians carry their faith with them. Christianity has always prospered in times of persecution. When we have been co-opted into culture or politics, on the other hand, when we become comfortable, we stand up a lot less for our faith and who we are. Now that seems to be kind of the, the way it's been. So what are we hoping for? Persecution? What do you think? I'm not going to pray for that. Burl said no. No. Okay. But. Yeah. Yeah, I knew it was there. Okay. Any other comments? Anything else you want to add? Um, Righteous fanaticism. So, I'm a Florida State fan, but I'm not really a fanatic about it. We'll either win the national championship again or not. That will not matter much in the scheme of things. But am I a fanatic about my faith? The answer is, you betcha. You betcha. It defines who we are. When we travel, we take it with us. When we're forced by state or persecution, we have to stand up. We have to speak up. We have to. It is in our nature. It is who we are. Any other comments about verse 4? Otherwise, we've got to talk about money and religion. And that's number 2. Any other comments? Surely. All right. Verse 5. You know the story. Let's read it. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. In the book of Acts, there are no headers, breakings. Luke just simply jumps from one narrative to another, and he just jumped. It was about the year 33 or 34 AD 
when persecution began. And then one of the seven deacons, I think, of chapter 6, Philip, uh, goes on the road and goes up the road. Let's look at the map here a second. Uh, right here, this is where Jerusalem is, and uh, there is where Samaria, the region, is. But Samaria is not just a region, it's also a city. There's a major city called Samaria. It's right there where the dot of the eye is on Samaria. So he goes to the city of Samaria. So what did Jesus say? You're going to take, you're going to be my witnesses to Judea, to Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and here's where phase two begins in earnest in about the third or fourth year. And so Philip is identified. Um, Please notice the topography of uh, Israel. Um, Do you see there is the region and there is the city of Samaria? And... uh, uh, this is the coastal area, and this is uh, about uh, 1,500 feet up in the air. So it's, there's some significant hills and mountains and travel that's involved there. And uh, we have actually, archaeologists have excavated the capital city of Samaria. Uh, and um, we have found a few things there. That's where it is again in Palestine. And they have found uh, the old wall, the, uh, the, the remnants of the old temple that was there. A stadium from the Roman times. They found several things from the capital. But what uh, what happens in about the year 33 A.D. is that one of the uh, deacons in the Jerusalem church, who has been vested with by what the apostles put their hands on him, he uh, travels up to Samaria, and this is what the text says. Philip went down. He actually goes up, but from Jerusalem, which is 2,600 feet up in the air, he goes down. When Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. He operated miracles. Signs were a testament to the providence, the veracity of the person that was speaking. The message was not mattered. The signs were to prove they were from God. He was given by one of the apostles laying hands on him the right, the power to do signs, charismatic gifts. For unclean spirits, here's what he did. He was able to do unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. Just in the news this week, uh, Catholic Church is increasing their uh, training of exorcists. Um, some in the generic Christian world think that uh, Satan and demons still can possess people like they did in the first century. I don't believe that to be true, but they are increasing the number of trained exorcists that will do that, just to let you know. This is, uh, this is a guy that doesn't need training <laughs> because he actually has the uh, God-given charismatic gift power to uh, push back forces of evil out of people. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of the many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. So one day in the year 33, an Orthodox Jew from Jerusalem comes into a Samaritan city, which an Orthodox Jew is not supposed to go into, and brings with him a message about the Messiah coming and proves that by doing things that are from God, like expelling demons and healing people. That is a great day for the city of Samaria. Stop me if you want me to stop on a certain text. But 
Here's where the turn is. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. In the Greek text here of, uh, of uh, the book of Acts, um, it, it's uh, a title for uh, Simon is Tudunamis Tutheu, which means he is the, the dynamite of God. He is the power of God. That's his title. So if he had a, had a billboard for his shows and you had to pay a ticket to get in, uh, he would have been Simon, the power of God. Tudunamis Tutheu. Okay? He had a serious show. And he had impressed people for years. But the magician is impressed himself when one day, who walks into town is a guy that doesn't have to train or uh, practice the tricks, but does them. Who better than a magician would recognize true True, true powers. <laughs> so, in one second flat, he says, ooh, that's the real thing. That's the real thing. Um, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, he sees crowds not attending his magic show, but going to Philip. As he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself Believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the amazer was amazed. Now, the very, uh, I think I've put this before you on another occasion. Uh, I, I'm not sure what to make of this text. Um, what Luke seems to say is that Simon believed, so I got to seemingly grant him sincerity. The only problem is what follows next seems to undermine the sincerity that I'm granting him right here. So he believed and he was baptized. And I continued with Philip. And he was amazed by the powers that Philip could do. Now here's the thing. Philip is not passing on the powers to anybody else because he can't. Correct? Philip is doing the miracles. And Simon is amazed. What he doesn't see Philip doing is passing those miracles on to anybody else. So there's, that's the nature of the charismatic gifts that Christ gave to the church as he ascended into heaven. As if Ephesians 4 verse 11 says, Christ gave to the church apostles and uh, prophets and the charismatic gifts. And uh, this is one of them to confirm that the message that you're hearing from Philip is from God. Uh, that's what the whole point is. Stop me if you have a comment or a question. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem uh, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I'm sure I'm not telling anything new, but uh, there was a time when I didn't quite uh, get this text. Now, what's going on here? Sometimes we use the, uh, uh, it's not in the 
the New Testament text, but what did the apostles have? They had the full measure of the Holy Spirit. Now, full measure is not a term you'll find in the New Testament, but it describes they had the ability to do all the miracles, all of them, all the charismatic miracles. On the other hand, they were the only ones that when they laid their hands would, could impart miracles to others, and others got individual ones, not all of them, and they couldn't pass them on. That's why Philip had not been passing them on. So when two apostles come down from Jerusalem, when they hear of many being baptized up in Samaria, the stated purpose is to what? What does it say? They're there to confirm, and they lay their hands on some, and when they do that, some are able to uh, have charismatic gifts. Again, not all. Some are able to have some of the charismatic gifts. Now that is how I read it. Any, any comments or suggestions there of what's going on? Yes. Yes, sir. Sure. And they didn't choose which charismatic gift they got. Who chose it? The, the apostle chose it? Okay. Yes, sir. That's what my understanding is. The Spirit chose the gift. Is that right? Any objection? Okay. All right. So, they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that, the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money. This is where either the old Simon comes back or the Simon was never sincerely converted. I'm not sure which one. It's not my point to judge. But here's the power of, of money. Money when tied with, uh, with religion. I say that because of the strong reaction that Peter makes here. I, it seems, it, it, I could be wrong, it seems that, wow, the reaction of Peter to what might seem a natural thing. He used to be a magician. And then he sees the apostles come in and pass on charismatic power. So he says, I want those. And he offers money. He offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone of whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That seems to be a noble thing. Seems to be, the justification. Uh, On the other hand, he had been a professional entertainer and had made a lot of money with his magic, so you got to keep that in mind. Peter says to him, and here's the whammo. It's like a two-by-four across the head. Uh... Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Whoa. Uh, just an unequivocal, take that door and slam it. <laughs> just, we are not going to go there. Separation between what? Money and? Charismatic gifts, for sure. 
But you can say money and, uh, and faith if you expand that a little bit more, I think. Um, when Jesus came into the temple, probably twice, he found in the Jerusalem temple some money changers. What did he do? Uh, the only time Jesus is violent, is that true? Not with people, uh, but with tables, <laughs> right? He's violent with tables. Yes, sir. Salvation? No. No, sorry, I didn't mean to apply that. No. Yes, I'm sorry. Right. Correct. Uh, but I'm glad you clarified that. I didn't mean to leave that. He's wanting the full measure. All of them received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it was obviously without the charismatic gifts. Uh, it's what I have too, but I can't perform charismatic gifts. Um, the apostles come up and, as you know, then laying their hands on, give to some. But you're right, everybody receives the gifts of the Holy Spirit, absolutely. So thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Anything else? Anything else? Yes. Chapter? Okay. Yes. Correct. Correct. Simon wants. Simon wants gifts because they bring attention. Exactly. Correct. You don't receive, Paul will say 20 years later in the letters of 1 Corinthians, he will say, you don't receive gifts because you deserve them. You, des- you receive a gift of the charismatic gift because the church needs them. You don't act arrogant because you got them. You didn't, you didn't earn it, a gift. They're for the service of the church. And by the way, the graduatory that you got of gifts, he tells the Corinthians, is they think speaking in tongues is the best one. That's, that's the, because that really impresses people when you start speaking in tongues. And then there's, then there's others. And he says, if I had to make a list, it wouldn't be speaking in tongues at the top. He would say, if, if I had to make a list, I would put prophecy up there. Why would prophecy be higher if you had to make a list? Because Paul does not say there's a graduatory of them. He, he says prophecy is spoken to those that are, uh, it is, is the way in which the early church, without a New Testament as we have it, knew the gospel and knew what to do. Because they had within them some that were gifted with the speaking for God. So, yes, you're correct in bringing that up. Yes, sir. Sure. Is it your position that Simon did not receive any of the 
No, no. I have to. I have to read um, verse seventeen. Right. Where'd it go? A uh, previous friend. Yeah. He believed, and he was baptized. Next friend. Oh. That all of them received gifts? I not all the 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 text doesn't say it, but I guess since I know that for game plan the Corinthian church only some had received it, I would that's the only reason I was Well, then why would Simon offer money? read it as he can conceive of this charismatic gifts that he can get as a major tool because he offers money so money is on his mind and he's going to make an even bigger show of it than he had done previously with fake magic. Okay. Pass it on. Okay. Burl, did you? Yes. Pass it on. Okay. So would he have charged for it, do you think? The power to pass it, the, if he had had a... I think so. Thing, I think okay. that's what he wanted to be able to pass it on if he had charged. All right. Brother Bob, did you have a comment? Or? Sure. Received. I'm still there. Right. It doesn't change. Sure. I have to grant him that. So how do you read P 
Peter's reaction here. I'm glad you said that because we, we, we probably forgot that in Acts chapter 5, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, what did Peter have the ability to do that I can't and you can't? Judge the intentions of the heart. That was one of the apostolic gifts. So that's how I understand then better he can look into his heart and he can say there's something very dark, speculative about this request, this desire. It's not natural. It is bad. And it needs to be have the door slammed on it as fast as lightning. So now the reaction of, of Simon. Peter says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Here's that intent of the heart thing, right? And then... I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Wow. How did he get there so quick? You know, you have to ask yourself. If you grant them sincerity, a few verses before, how did he get to the gall of iniquity here? Yes, sir. He was a... A sorcerer, a magician? Okay, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Was there somebody else who want to make a comment? Right. There it is. The pride, arrogance. Ah. Uh, Paul's going to have to deal with that, uh, the, the, the weakness of man. It is uh, our pride, our arrogance. Uh, the children of Israel always got in trouble when they, when they became arrogant. Uh, pride. Uh, pride, if I grant Simon full sincerity when he was baptized, how do you move so quickly from sincerely converted to in the gall of iniquity unless it's a human character that can come screaming back with a major return of flame here. Uh, We can be turned quickly by our pride into absolutely uh, ungodly (laughs) actions and quests. Brother Bob, uh, Brother Verl, yeah. That's a good point. All right. So you read the last part as a he is uh, shamed into uh, repentance. You you read it that way, okay, Brother Verl? Word what? Okay. Bond of iniquity. Okay. 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 Simon was not able to separate out of himself the sin that was a part of him that existed before his baptism. Hmm. And it's, it's overwhelming to him. It's just like he said. It's okay. like a good 
Okay. Wow, that's like. Uh, but that doesn't that doesn't nullify your salvation. You? That, no. I got the point twenty two, maybe first point two. Watch out. Repent and then pray to the Lord for You're going to lose. Yeah, don't do those two things. You're in trouble. You're going to lose what you got. You're going to lose what you got. Okay. I think you would have had a different response Okay. Thank you for teaching me something tonight. You taught me a lot. Thank you for being here.